0: Leviticus, uh, chapter, chapter sixteen. I'm wondering, did I, did I read through verse nineteen or verse fourteen? That's. I'm looking at it now and realizing I did that. Thank you. So we'll we'll pick it up at verse fifteen. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So we shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so we shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement and to uh, in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself, for his household and, and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and, and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And then he shall sprinkle some of. The blood on it with his finger seven times it and consecrated from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a substitute man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabitable land and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offering and burnt all and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar and he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering Whose blood has, uh, was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward he may come into the camp. This shall be a statute forever for you in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month. You shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. And let us pray together. Our gracious father in heaven, we thank you for this most solemn of all chapters in the Old Testament. We confess to you, O Lord, that it is too great for us. It's too great for me. It's too great for one sermon in many ways. All of the types and the shadows and the sacrifices all converge in one moment and one event. And this was the high point, at least in far as the old covenant was concerned. Help us, Lord, now. Uh, help me through the preaching to, to, to shed light on this, your word, and to give it greater power and relevance to the lives of your people who now are heirs of a new covenant. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is now the day of atonement. This is, as I was just praying, uh, the high point of Leviticus. It's the high point of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. It is arguably the high point of the Old Testament. Certainly it was uh, from the standpoint of Israel's worship and her calendar, the, the, the holy day, the high holy day of Israel. And this is what we all want to know about in our study of Leviticus. What about the day of atonement? And here's our chance to find out. Let me say that uh, even as I'm reading this chapter just now, again, for the, I don't know, 20th time this week, my mind is full of so much imagery. And there may be things that you're hoping I'll say that I won't get to say. Uh, I'm just bringing to you, uh, well, a, a few a few spiritual treasures, I hope, from this rich, rich chapter. The first thing that I would want to notice is the interesting route That brought us to this point. You see what is said in verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire to the Lord and died. Now that reminds us of what what we read in chapter 10 verses one and two. That Nadab and Abihu offered profane fire, a strange fire to the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire went out from the Lord that is uh, from the inner room and it devoured those men. But, but what's so interesting, and, and perhaps we don't realize this immediately when we're reading uh, the Bible, but that the instructions which were given in chapter 16 were given on that same day. You remember what happened on that day, not concerning Nadab and Abihu, but Moses and Aaron. It's Moses and Aaron who were at the forefront of chapter 16. The Lord says to Moses, tell Aaron this. Well, what had just happened was... We see the brief conversation between these two men, Aaron standing over his dead sons, Moses over his dead relatives. And Moses says to to Aaron, by those who come who, who come near to me, I must be regarded as holy and before all the people, I must be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And there Aaron still is holding his peace. And the Lord says to Moses, tell Aaron. Tell him what? Well, first of all, tell him not to come. Tell Aaron and your brother not to come just at any time into the holy place lest he die. And so the whole of the chapter begins with a prohibition. But it makes sense when you consider what had just happened that day. And perhaps even very shortly before this. Native and Abihu. who in offering strange fire, had entered within the veil, presuming a place in the tent of meeting that was not theirs. And so the first thing to be stressed to Aaron by the Lord was that a man must not enter that place unless he's told to do so. Again, you especially notice the words here, lest he die. And was it not clear now that God meant it? That man would die if he presumed a place that was not his, even the priests ministering before the mercy seat where God was enthroned. How soberly Aaron must have received these words. But the second interesting point concerning how we got there or here. Is what comes between chapters 10 and 16. The way chapter 16 verse 1 opens, you would think the events of chapter 10 had just occurred. And indeed they had. But in the course of the narrative of Leviticus. Leviticus. In the way Moses arranged it, chapters 11 through 15 intervene. Those chapters, uh, chapters you remember, dealt with laws of personal cleanness. We might call those chapters the cleanliness code, as it has sometimes been called. And the question is obviously, why does it intervene? What does Moses accomplish by putting this material in between? Well, the answer is that it only adds to what... Chapter 10 accomplished chapter 10 left us with the sense that it's a very thing that is a very dangerous thing to worship God. One false step and he might kill us. Well, you say, thank God that was true only in the old covenant. But I ask you, is that is that really so? Have you read what God did to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five? But chapter 10 in reality, only begins to tell us how difficult and dangerous it is to worship God. Dangerous for man. Again, it is literally true to say God might kill you. You remember Paul warning the Corinthians of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But chapters 11 through 15 fit within this broader framework, describing in a detailed way the difficult, difficulty and near impossibility of worshiping God as Sinners. Chapters 11 through 15 come in and say man is totally unclean. He's constantly contracting defilement or at least he's producing it uh, from within. And as a result of his own defilement, which he contracts from without or produces from within, he is totally unfit to worship God. This stands out very clearly at the end of chapter 15, where it reads uh, verse 31. Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness. When they defile my tabernacle, that is among them. Do you realize that the thing that God was most concerned about was not that the people should be unclean, but that his tabernacle would be unclean? You might say uh, he, he wasn't so concerned. He was, but he wasn't so concerned that they should be unclean. What he was concerned about was that they should defile the holy courts, which he had built and in which he dwelt. John Currid in his commentary says concerning uh, these chapters, you read chapter 10, you read chapters 11 through 15. And and you say, and and I think that we would all say, and I hope that my preaching of the cleanliness code gave you this sense very clearly. Uh, Currid says the burden of the law has become almost unbearable. And there's no accident here. That was quite Intentional. Let Israel see her danger in the examples of Nadab and Abihu. Let her see her danger in her constant defilement. And let her wonder, is there any way for a sinner to approach God in his holiness? Well, let me say something here about the importance of Leviticus chapter 16 to the whole of Leviticus. And indeed, the whole of the Pentateuch. From the standpoint of the whole of the Pentateuch, numerous scholars have shown, and I'm not really interested in doing this in a sermon, but at any rate, I hope you'll trust me when I say that numerous scholars have shown that Leviticus 16 is the literary center of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. And if you know anything about Hebrew literature, you know the center, not the end. The end tends to be the high point for us, but the center was always the high point to the Hebrew. Certain things that I will say uh, will prove this, I think, from a thematic and theological viewpoint. But as for Leviticus itself, it is the clear center. It's the center from which uh, the first section pivots to the second cent- center uh, Section, excuse me. All that we read in, in chapters 1 through 15 have to do with the blood. That's the great theme of the first half of the book. The approach to God through the blood of sacrifice. And when you come to chapter 16, it is the culmination of all these lesser sacrifices. It is where we find the high priest himself actually drawing near into the presence of God, making atonement for himself and for the people. Everything uh, led to this. Everything pointed in this direction. And now uh, the fullness of that, at least in so far as the old covenant was concerned, uh, comes to pass. Uh, but then if you come to the other side of Leviticus chapter 16, you have uh, a new section and a new emphasis Following uh, chapter 16, we have what is commonly called the Holiness Code of Israel. So you had the Cleanliness Code, now you have the Holiness Code, chapters 17 and following, chapters 17 through 27. In other words, uh, and the structure here is very deliberate, following the reconciliation with God that chapters 1 through 16 portray, and especially chapter 16, Israel needed to see what a life that was reconciled to God looks like on the other side. And so in the chapters which follow, he tells them in the Holiness Code. A very basic way uh, to consider that two-fold structure of Leviticus is to say uh, that chapters 1 through 16 deal with justification. Chapters 17 through 27 concern sanctification, which is admittedly overly simplistic, but it is helpful nonetheless. But if we were to look in particular at this chapter and the sequence of events which occur here, and there are many, many details. But the basic sequence I would present is follows. We have first in verse 2 that entrance is prohibited. That's what the Lord begins with, which uh, we've seen the reason being the sins and the death of Nadab and Abihu. But following this, there is the invitation to, to enter. So he's prohibited and then he's invited under particular circumstances. And in verses three through five, you have the preparation of the high priest, which included three things, the washing of his body, the putting on of simpler garments. Here he was uh, to appear before the Lord unadorned. And then thirdly, he was. To bring his sacrifices both for himself and for the people. And we could divide what follows into two approaches. Twice he went into the inner room. You remember the tabernacle, the tent, was divided into two rooms. He was going into the inner room. There was the first approach to the holy place, which occurs in verses 6 through 14. I think, by the way, that's why my mind naturally just stopped there, because that's the division. First, Aaron, we read, is to offer for himself and his family a bull as a sin offering. And then he is to take the two goats and present them at the door and cast lots. One, we read, is for the Lord to be slain. And that comes later with respect to the people. That would be the sin offering for the people in his second approach. And the other is to be the scapegoat. And the the, the scapegoat comes even after that. But returning to the bull that he brings as a sin offering, having slain the, the bull uh, of the sin offering for himself and his family. He brings uh, some of that blood in a bowl along with a pan with burning coals from the altar and puts incense on that pan. And so we can imagine something like Aaron with a bowl full of blood and a pan full of burning coals and incense uh, as smoke going out from there, from uh, the smoke of the fire and the incense. And so now a sweet-smelling smoke, he enters into the veil. In doing this, the cloud fills the inner room for Aaron's sake, that his eyes might be shielded from the glory of the Lord as he was seated enthroned upon the mercy seat. The cloud now filling the room, he takes uh, blood from the bowl and he sprinkles the mercy seat. He sprinkles then uh, the floor seven times. And this ended the first approach. He goes out from the room. He returns to the altar. And thus begins the second approach. Now he would slay the first goat that was dedicated to the Lord as a sin offering for the people. And that the entire transaction would repeat itself as before. Only this time he appears... As a representative for the people rather than for himself. You remember what it says in Hebrews. We see this now very clearly. He must offer sacrifices for himself then for the people. For he was a sinner too. Another thing we notice here that likely occurred before. Though it's only highlighted here was the way he, he sprinkled the blood in the inner room. And then he sprinkled the blood in the outer room. And then he went back to the altar. And he sprinkled blood on the altar. And so we see, I'll stress this in a bit the movement from the inner room to the outer room to the altar, sprinkling blood all along the way. We might notice, and here's another point to return to, that the blood is spoken of that which cleanses the house from the defilement of the people. Well, remember the cleanliness code that stood behind us. Sin is seen as that which defiles Here, by atoning for their sins through the sprinkling of blood, a cleansing transaction was occurred. Again, uh, more more on that later. I'm simply noticing it here. So he shall, verse 16, make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And so on and so forth. But the next thing we notice after these two approaches, he's now returned to the altar and he's cleansed it with blood through sprinkling. He turns now to the scapegoat in verses 20 through 22. You notice the basic features. The scapegoat has been chosen by lot. He places both hands. I think I'm right in saying this is the only time we find this in scripture. You can correct me if I'm wrong in saying this, but I believe it is. He places both hands on the head of the scapegoat. And he confesses all of Israel's sins over the scapegoat. And he sends the scapegoat by a man appointed out into the howling wilderness, a desolate place. And the last thing we notice, there's a few other loose ends at the end, but I won't concern us with that. He returns into the outer the room. He changes back into the splendor of his priestly garments and he reappears to the people at the altar and he offers a final offering this time the burnt offering following reconciliation there must be consecration sin has been atoned for but now the people offer themselves through a burnt offering uh they offer their souls unto God they devote themselves to the Lord they resume the normal worship well that's the basic sequence i want uh, as always to note the significance. What is it especially that stands out here? Well, I, I, I was saying earlier, and I, I want to stress this point now, the first thing is the movement that occurs on that day. And, and he says it several times. He shall atone for the, the inner room, the outer room, and the altar. It's, it's stated a little bit uh, differently. Uh, let's see here. Verse 33, he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar. And so you have the sense of he's moving inward to outward. The sense, uh, therefore, was something like this, that as the people were moving further and further away from God throughout the year. Becoming more and more unclean here, God was moving toward them in the person of the priest Something of this idea of movement was also captured in the two goats presented at the door at the beginning of the whole transaction. And here you see movement in two directions, opposite directions. One was to go out as far away as possible, out of sight. And the other was to go in through the blood. Into the very inner room, into the presence of God. And thus we see in this whole episode the two uh, possibilities Either that we might draw near to God or we might be cast away. And there's really nothing in between. You either go along with one goat or with the other. But the sense is, the amazing sense on this day is that both were occurring on the same day. God was drawing near to man and man to God. They were meeting together. The two parties were being reconciled. And rather than man being cast out. Of God's presence into the wilderness. As Adam had our father before them. It was the goat himself upon whom the sin was laid. It was not man but sin that God was casting out. As though God was saying. I shall remove it as far as the east is from the west. You remember he says that in Psalm 130. I shall remember it no more. Jeremiah 31. That's what the Lord was conveying to his people, not only were they cleansed from the defilement of sin, but sin was being expiated. It was being pardoned. It was being removed. It is taken out of sight. Now, another way that we could frame this is to speak of the various kinds of rights that were involved. Uh, and on this point, I'm especially borrowing from Morales in his book on Leviticus, and he says that there are three kinds of rites that were present on the uh, the Day of Atonement. And the first uh, of these, which is in my mind the preeminent rite, is what is called the entrance rite. After watching these two men enter and die, and after being warned not to draw near except this once, what we see is that Aaron was able to enter into the most holy place, even into the very presence of God. And we must... We must realize something of the wonder of this, given not just what had happened in Leviticus 10, but all of the history that predated this. So clear was a view of God's glory there upon the mercy seat that Aaron must shield himself from it with the cloud of the incense. But is it not remarkable to see here? If you think of all the biblical history that led to this point. After Adam was cast out of the presence of God in his sanctuary, Eden uh, then in those days being the sanctuary of God where God dwelt. Is it not interesting to see that man is once more invited in to find this entrance right in the book of Leviticus? Are we not struck with the wonder of this whole transaction that God was inviting man into his presence by means of atonement? Not that God in his holiness suddenly uh, is no more offended by sin. The very means of man's expulsion. Obviously his holiness stands out very prominently here. But here is a holy God dealing with sin in such a way that man is able to draw near. You remember I've said this several times. If Jesus is the new and living way here's the old and living way. Whereby the sinner might draw near through the approach of the priest. The high priest on the day of atonement. But there's also a cleansing rite. Not just an entrance. But a cleansing rite. The house of God was cleansed from. The inside out says Morales. Cleansed from what? From the defilement of the people. From the defilement of their sin. That's what we saw in chapter 1531. Or chapter 16 verse 16. The sprinkling represented. The cleansing. So that God was not only. Uh, cleansing people, atoning for people, but he was atoning for places. Hold on to that thought. And this sets the day in the context of all that we read in chapters 11 through 15. Suddenly their relevance becomes crystal clear. The uncleanness of the people, the defilement of their sin upon the house of God needed to be cleansed. But there was also an elimination rite, which is seen in the scapegoat. And again, when we think of Adam's expulsion from the garden, that it was Adam who was eliminated or expelled from the garden along with his sin. We find here a new solution in God's design in the scapegoat. He no more proposes to expel the man, but only his sin. Sin is eliminated by means of atonement. And by this, God's plan for salvation is becoming clearer, isn't it, in the history of the Bible? Well, the next thing that I would say along those lines is that there is a beautiful portrayal here of Israel's redemption, of man's salvation, of the forgiveness of sins. May I even suggest with reverence that our Lord is a bit of an artist. He deals in beautiful images. His word is full of that. And that is what was on display on the day of atonement. He is able to portray truths about himself and about our salvation through powerful images through the goat, the blood of the the goat going in and the scapegoat going out, for instance. And as Israel observed all that transpired on that great day, she must have been powerfully uh, struck by the reality of God's pardoning mercies through all of these strong, powerful images. Another fact that stands out is the sacredness of the day itself. As I said already, this was the high holy day of Israel. This was the high point of her worship. If you look at what it says, I won't read all the verses, but what it says in verses 29 and following. This shall be a statute forever in the seventh month. On the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls, do no work at all. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you and you shall afflict your souls. A Sabbath of Sabbaths. A day of rest. A day in which the Lord says Israel is to afflict her souls. Do you know anything about this? What it is to afflict the soul. To be conscious of the conviction of sin. To lament and to wail and to mourn. No doubt the afflicting of the soul was seen in the people confessing their sins along with the priest himself. Here was a day to be observed, the Lord said, year after year. Two further points which become evident on this day. The need for atonement. We find uh, the same truth in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22, where he famously says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And it is precisely that truth which stands out in Leviticus chapter 16. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the principle of substitution, where one is made to die for another, the penalty, li- the, the, the penalty, excuse me, lies on the offender. Where would we be if there was none To lay our hand on and confess our sin. No one to die for us. We would be left to die for ourselves. Oh but when atonement has truly been rendered. The message of the Bible. Which God is only beginning to tell. Is that there really is forgiveness. An offended God really is reconciled to the sinner. And the sinner really does have a place in his presence. Oh there is forgiveness. Of such a kind, Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, verse 18, that even sacrifice itself becomes unnecessary. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer a sacrifice for sin. But also, uh, this day very strongly underscored the need for the priesthood. Here is something which stands out in Leviticus 16, uh, just as it stands out in the book of Hebrews. What hope is there for the sinner if there's no one to offer for him? You see, it isn't enough. The Bible tells us that we have a sacrifice, but we need one to offer one whom God appoints and one whose sacrifices and whose place God accepts. You know that the heathens uh, through, through through history have offered their sacrifices, but God has always rejected them. Man has always been conscious of the need for sacrifice, but without a priest, it's all in vain. But what should transpire if God should not only provide a sacrifice, but a priesthood whom he has appointed to make offerings for man? Look at Aaron and Christ after him and see one whom God has appointed for this very purpose to minister grace, to minister reconciliation to sinners. The last thing that I would notice about Leviticus chapter 16 is the typology of the day under three headings. First, there is the typology of Eden. There's no way to read Leviticus chapter 16 without what happened on uh, that day in the background. Now, I had a sheet of paper. What did I do with it? There it is. So much of what I've said already uh, points in this direction. The way it was the sinner that was expelled from the sanctuary of God. And now God through atonement is inviting the sinner back in. Or at least the high priest. And later in the new covenant it will be the sinner himself. But let me add this as well. Just to fill out the picture. The typology of Eden being fulfilled. Uh, at least partially in the day of atonement. How we see in Eden the fate Of all made to depend on the one. And so here. And so later in the new covenant. You see all of Israel standing out to observe. What uh, occurred on that day. And even uh, so much of it occurring out of their sight. In the inner room. And yet they were aware that the fate of all depended on one. Uh, I doubt I could put it any better than Bonar himself puts it when he says. It was to be evident that the priest alone made atonement and none else. On one man depended their atonement. How often would the the idea of another Adam cross their minds? All leading, all leaning on one. And oh, how tremblingly alive would they be to the danger of that one man, their representative failing in any point of duty that day. If he fail, Israel's guilt remains. The high priest himself feels his awful responsibility. If he sin in this matter, he quenches the light of Israel, extinguishes their hopes, sends them away in blank despair. This one person is entrusted with their life and their all. And thus the Holy Spirit painted Jesus to the view of those who had clear Abraham-like faith. He will be alone in his undertaking, one for all. Well, I could go on with that, but... I think this would be a good time to go on to the second point, and that is the typology of the new covenant. So many of the truths here. I was beginning to catalog, in fact, all of the the many passages in in, uh, Hebrews, which spoke of the day of atonement and and the task became hopeless. Uh, So I'm not going to quote Hebrews to you. I'm going to summarize Hebrews to you. Chapters 1 through 10, the book of Hebrews, the whole of it comes to mind here. I won't even say so much, all of it. All of it comes to mind here. How the day of atonement prefigured what was to occur in the ministry of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Not merely at the cross, but even in his incarnation and then in his high heavenly intercession for us. All of his ministry is prefigured in the day of atonement. The day in which the great high priest ministered in the presence of God. And so uh, we could say... What transpired on that day anticipated his greater work, both in its strength and in its weaknesses. We are thankful that it provided a fitting picture of what he would later do. And really, there's no way to read a book like Hebrews without first grasping what is said in Leviticus. By the means uh, of, of, of the priesthood and the sacrifice, we've become familiar with the ideas of sacrifice. We become familiar with the ideas of priesthood, of blood, of atonement. And understanding these things, what Christ is doing at the cross and what Christ is doing now in the presence of God as our great high priest becomes clear. We find on the day of atonement a God who is willing to pardon sin and to be reconciled to the sinner on certain conditions. Conditions which Jesus met perfectly and finally once for all, Hebrews says over and over again. But the weakness of the day was equally evident Especially to the spiritual, uh, spiritually minded Israelite who had, as Bonar just said, an Abraham-like faith. And only created in his heart a greater longing, desire for a greater priesthood and a greater sacrifice. Something better and more solid. One could not observe what transpired on that day and not be struck by certain obvious points of weakness, which Hebrews later spells out, such as... The obvious inability of animals to atone for sin. Chapter 10, verse 4. Was the Israelite really asked to place the hope of his soul in the guilt of his conscience in the blood of bulls and goats? Number two, No, he wasn't. Evidently so. No, he wasn't. Number two. The sinfulness of the priests themselves. So much is made of the priesthood, and yet these men were sinners too. Was that really as good as it ever could be? No, it wasn't. And such is the thought that occurred to faith. Number three, the constant repetition of it all. Even this day that was uh, partitioned off once a year, it still was happening over and over and over again. Where is the language of once for all? Where is the language of it is finished? You can't find it in the Old Covenant. Again, you can imagine that the heart of the Old Covenant, Satan yearning for these words to be uttered. And we also see in Hebrews that the priests were prevented by death from continuing God had just killed two of the priests, Aaron would soon die and more and more priests would come along. But when we come to the new covenant. And as I say, the thought must have occurred to the faith of the old covenant saints. We find one who is beset with no such weaknesses. This is one of the great argument of Hebrews. None of the weaknesses whatsoever. Not a single trace of weakness in his ministry, in his sacrifice, in his person, in his priesthood. He comes to us in the glory of his priesthood as the very son of God himself. For that is who he is, the son of God, Jesus Christ. He takes hold of us, we read in Hebrews chapter 2, and becomes one like us in our, in our humanity. Sin accepted. He, he is one without sin. In order that he might assume our place as as our high priest before God as Aaron did before him. And yet one in whom all the apparent deficiencies of the old covenant do not appear. One who continues forever in his priesthood. One whose sacrifice bears no repetition. Because the blood which was offered was that of the very son of God himself in the flesh. You see. It would be impossible to quote Hebrews because I'm just summing up everything that he says. I might as well have read chapters 1 through 10 here. But do you see in the obvious deficiencies that appeared in that day, Jesus shines brighter. That's what you're meant to see. That's the whole argument of Hebrews. How he shines brighter in his high heavenly priesthood. How he shines brighter in that one sacrifice for sins once for all. How he puts away sin once for all by one sacrifice of himself and how he ever appears before God on the strength of that one sacrifice and on the strength of his perfect priesthood. How clearly we can now see that all that transpired on the day of atonement year after year pointed to him and all of the inadequacies and all of the deficiencies and all of the longings of the Old Testament Jews are put away. And our consciences are put at ease, at ease. The words are uttered. It is finished once for all. But before that day should come, there was the day of atonement, anticipating his greatness, looking forward to his coming. And once he had come, the shadow of the old covenant passed into the reality of the new. Here is a forgiveness That abides and bears no repetition. Here is a putting away for sin once for all. Here is God and the sinner reconciled at last. So that even the conscience of the sinner is pacified. Hebrews tells us. But there's one final thing that I wish to say. And that is the typology of cosmic renewal. Remember I said that God was interested not only in people but in places. Well that remains true even now. When Jesus shed his blood on the cross, I say with reverence, he didn't do it all. He told us many times in the Gospels that even after he died, there was still yet work left undone. One great work that he would come back to do. Of course, on that shameful cross, he paid for sin in full. The words "It is finished are certainly true in that respect. Atonement has fully been rendered for sinners Never again does sin require sacrifice now that Jesus has shed his blood. But still there is the work that he promised to do at the end of the age when he returns to this world after having gone to his his father in the ascension. When Jesus comes again in glory, he will cleanse the world. Just in the same way that the high priest was cleansing the tabernacle and the altar, Jesus will return as the great high priest of humanity and he will cleanse the world the world he will rid it of every form of sin and defilement he will renew it and perfect it you see jesus doesn't just atone for us nor did the great high priest or the high priest excuse me the old covenant only atone for the people but he does he does it for the world as well he atones for the world He's interested in persons, but also in places. That's what we see in the day of atonement. A greater picture that God is portraying that will be fulfilled one day. The tabernacle cleansed. A fitting place for God to dwell in his people with him. And one day, he will do the same exact thing for this world in which we live. Heaven upon earth, a cosmic renewal When all is cleansed, the redemption not only of our bodies in the resurrection, but of the whole creation, Romans chapter eight. And for this, we hope and groan and eagerly wait the fullness and the completion of redemption. And all of this God was pointing to in Leviticus chapter 16, that his work would not be finished until all the effects of sin and all of its forms were dealt with finally and put away once and for all. And such is the hope more fully set before us at the end of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 21, verses one through five. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then John, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, right, for these words are true and faithful. Amen. And let us return uh, to God for his word. Songs of praise hymn number six ninety and please stand.